I was just like, wow. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 278 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Brady. Today, I learned that on a ship, the poop deck gets its name from the French word poop, which literally means the back of the boat, effectively ruling out my claims to a rich naval heritage. (laughs) (laughs) Saran Yitbark. Hey, everybody. Sam Livingston Gray. This sentence, no verb. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Karina C. Zona. Good morning. Uh, do you want to give us a brief introduction? Um, sure. I am a developer, a dev evangelist, um, a noisy advocate on Twitter, and uh, the founder of Callback Women, which is a project to radically expand gender diversity at the podium of professional programmers' conferences. Um, Let's see. Oh, and I am uh, one of the administrators of We So Crafty, a Slack group for techies who craft. Cool. Oh, oh, and I'll add one more thing. And I'm a certified sex educator, so I love talking about any and all of these topics. <laughs> There's a nice. certifying board for that? Uh, th- well, not there actually, I think, is a professional certifying board, but my certificates are from other organizations, including the um, Unitarian Universalist Church, which has a lifespan um, sex, comprehensive sex education program that starts in kindergarten and goes through senior citizens. So there's various levels, and I'm certified for several of those levels. Very cool. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's a first on this show, I have to say. I, I like to hope so. <laughs> Although there are, other, there are other sex educators in tech. There's a number. So we're here. Nice. Well, we brought you on to talk about consequences of an insightful algorithm. Um, I kind of uh, blew through the talk rather quickly. Uh, do you want to kind of give us the, you know, sort of a starting point or the main point that you want us to talk about, and then we can kind of go from there? Um, sure. The, the talk is dealing with um, essentially unintended consequences and specifically harms from uh, really just everyday coding, the way that we make decisions mm-hmm. Um, you know, can have side effects that are pretty personally devastating, and we're usually completely oblivious to that. So it's really trying to surface some of the different ways that harms have been, you know, inadvertently perpetrated by others, and what we can learn having some some principles for how to prevent those ourselves. And um, um, in part, it's, it's scaring the pants off of people. Um, a number of people have given it reviews of things like intense and dark. Um, there's a number of content warnings because they deal with a whole lot of sensitive topics, um, which is kind of the point that you think you're doing something really you know, innocuous, and somehow it can end up involving really touchy subjects. Um, so that that's uh, yes. that's the big picture of it, and also deals as a consequence of that. Ah, as a consequence, ha ha ha. Um, stuff like algorithmic um, bias and algorithmic transparency, which um, uh, oh, and um, particular field of uh, machine learning that's really emerged in the last couple of years, which is called deep learning. Uh, so we could talk more about any of those as well. Yeah, I have to say, some of the examples in the talk, I was just like, wow. And it's, yeah. you know, you're at the same time, yeah. my brain starts going to the place where it's, well, how could you make it not do that? And anyway, it was, 
I, I, I don't know if I have good answers and, you know, some of the things you brought up definitely would help, but even then, you know, you mentioned machine learning and I know that a lot of these algorithms, they just feed it a ton of information and teach it how to sort through it. And then eventually it learns. And so it's okay. Well, am I just not feeding it the right sample set or? In, I mean, there are various causes and this is certainly one of them is for, um, for machine learning, you have to be really careful that the training data set is very close to the production data set. And it's really easy for those to differ, um, particularly when you're talking about the scale of, you know, you're using something smaller scale to do the training, right? You've got big data flowing through continuously. You did the training maybe once or periodically. So, you know, you, you can easily end up having greater diversity of, of um, data coming through that production stream than what happened to be hit by the training. Um, you also, like, we're humans. We're constantly changing. We're constantly evolving, even on that kind of macro scale from day to day or minute to minute. Um, so the data that was totally on point and, you know, parallel a couple of weeks ago can start migrating away from that. So we have a lot of opportunity for something that seemed like really apt training to still be off base. Mm -hmm. So I hey, could, Karina, we, we've got some listeners who are going to go uh, from this episode directly to watching your talk. Can we, for those, for those people, can we, they, they don't know what examples you're talking about. Can we, sure. can you, can you give them an example? You, you're, you're talking about machine learning. And so I, I have to confess, I haven't seen your talk yet. I'm going to watch it next, but uh, <laughs> I, I'll just own that right now. I'm, 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 I'm here as the straw yeah. man. I'm here as the straw man for your argument, but you said machine language. And so I can already start to see some of the horrors that are, that are coming out of this, but can, can you give us some examples or at least, at least an example of an example? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. So of not that particular situation, but some other ones that are kind of related, um, this one is particularly fascinating to me. So there were a couple with image recognition. Um, uh, one was Flickr's implementation of deep learning, um, which is using artificial neural nets to do um, unlabeled training. So you don't have to label photographs. This is a this, this is a that. It learns on its own how to, to group and categorize things and name them um, just from having seen other objects already having been named. So it's looking for those patterns. So Flickr had implemented this technology and it ended up labeling a absolutely gorgeous photograph of a black man, like really well composed as um, an ape. Um, and that oh, wow. is, I mean, in the context of U.S. history, particularly associating an African-American person with apes, monkeys, gorillas, et cetera, is, has a long history of being a deeply oh, yeah. offensive mm -hmm. racial slur for those who are listening from outside the U.S. or are not familiar with this history. You couldn't pick, well, you could pick a worse term, but this is a pretty bad one. Um, yeah. It, on the face of it, it can easily appear to be intentionally racist in some way. Um, I, I have theories that it is not, and I can explain why. But what happened a month after that one was well publicized is Google Photos, which is also using, uh, had newly implemented deep learning to do labeling of photos, had a nearly identical incident in which a photograph of 
in this case two black people, was labeled as guerrillas. So you've got the same problem. And here is, you know, one of the problems is we have to pay attention. We have to pay attention mm -hmm. to what other people are doing. We can't, you know, be so isolated that we are unaware of, oh, that happened somewhere else. We should really check, you know, let, let's set up a test to make sure ours doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it's really easy to not be paying attention. Um, and the consequence of that is not just for the person, but also we end up looking, you know, we, for instance, if that as Google Photos, for instance, you end up looking even worse. You look even more foolish and you look like you don't care and you look like potentially it was deliberate to make a decision not to care. Whether any of that is true or not, I don't know, but it ends up looking far worse the second time than the first time. So this is a reason to be really making sure that we are paying attention to the industry and particularly paying attention to, to screw-ups and you know, mm. saying immediately, let's check to see whether we would make that same screw-up. This reminds me of the, the thing that Hewlett-Packard did back in 2009 where they released... Uh, they started with... Uh, it, was, it was a webcam that would track... Uh, it would digitally track. It would, it would super sample, take a huge picture super wide angle at super high resolution and then it would figure out where your face was and it would crop the image and zoom in on that so basically it was face tracking and the engineers that developed it were all white dudes and so they literally did things like uh the forehead should be lighter than the eyes so we're going to look for some dark spots in a light field area and the end result was a an entire line of actual hardware in production in stores at walmart that you could go well walmart doesn't have computers anymore but you know what i mean you could walk into a best buy and you could walk up to a computer and if you happened to have dark enough skin the laptop would deny your existence as a human being it literally would say no one is present that's, that's that, brutal. Yeah, that is. And if you think about where we've gone in later years, we have stuff like phones doing security lock-unlock based on things like recognizing your face. So now it's not just that was offensive or annoying. It becomes you're actually preventing me from using my own my own systems. And I think within a couple of years, we're going to start seeing that with you know desktop computers, laptops, as well as this becomes an option to do using facial recognition to log in. Um, so we have to deal with these problems. You brought up essentially deliberate bias, not deliberate bias, but you know, uh, conscious choices that left out uh, important data, right? The important mm -hmm. data being not everybody has light skin. Um, yeah. In the case of some of the examples that I brought well, up, I should. I, sorry, I, I should clarify. Yeah. I am conjecturing as an engineer that that's what they did. Right. I I don't Fair want to. I, I don't want to slam these guys for something that they may have deliberately done. Uh, so much as yeah, it, it's very clear that they never tested against somebody with just that like Nigerian yeah. purple black skin as yeah. as part of their test suite. It, it's yeah. obvious that, the, that it never occurred to them to do that. So yeah, I, sorry, I don't want to. They, they screwed up, but I don't want to accuse them of more screw up than they actually did. So fair uh, enough. If, if yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a it is a legitimate theory that we don't know whether it can be applied to this case. Um, so another legitimate theory uh, is related to data quality. Um, it, back in the fifties, when Kodak was first um, coming up with film emulsions for color. Um, they made a decision, you know, we're talking about an era in which the U.S. was still highly segregated, um, that 
they were only interested in the market for white-skinned people. Um, and so everything with the calibration of film development was based on photographs of white women and calibrating to get the most detail out of white skin. Um, mm -hmm. Dark skin, let alone black skin, simply was not part of the consideration there. And so you had film emulsion, literally, it, there's an algorithm there, right? Th this algorithm of mm -hmm. repeat these steps in order to get this consistent outcome. The algorithm is only do that for white people. Um, it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that they actually started getting pressure from, ironically, manufacturers of chocolate and dark wood saying, your film is crummy for our, our product marketing. Wow. And actually, yeah, at that point, put out something else. But um, well, We're not going to change for people, but for chocolate, okay. Right, right. That's money. Um, an entire you know, market of human beings is unimportant, but yeah, mm -hmm. commercial. Um, so around the same time, we were also developing digital imaging, and they likewise started with um, a, a white model as that reference point. So you have, what, at this point, 60-plus years of imaging being built around the idea of optimizing for detail in white skin and not caring at all about detail in darker skin. Um, so the darker you get, mm -hmm. essentially, the lower quality data is being gathered. And if you're not aware of that, then you're treating the entire data set as being essentially equal quality. But we've got this legacy of all this data that's been carried over. We're still doing imaging the same way. You can't start off with, you know, current cameras and say, like, hey, let's, you know, make photographs completely render differently. Mm -hmm. um, so here we have this legacy. We're still dealing with it. We don't know we're dealing with it. And inevitably, that means that photographs really differ in quality in ways that are not discernible to the human eye, but are very discernible to machine learning. Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. So they are, are more prone to make mistakes because the data simply isn't there. So when we talk about things like image recognition and things that involve skin color or just, you know, images, I think it's that feels very preventable, right? It feels like let's consider all of the colors and not just some of the colors. For the examples that you've researched and, and all the work that you've done in algorithms, how much of the mistakes that we've seen are preventable in that way? And how much of it is just, let's hope we did this right, but as soon as we make a mistake, let's see how we can fix it. I think we always have to have in our toolbox that that tool of uh, we made a mistake, we need to go back. And in between that is mea culpa, we apologize so much, we will make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, we have to be willing to publicly admit it and, and you know, uh, recognize the impact. Um, a lot of these problems are hard. There's a reason why these mistakes happened. Some of it is on us to, as I said, take note. Um, some of it, for instance, how Google dealt immediately with the problem was nothing could be labeled gorilla, which is, you know, ha has problems at the other end with things that actually are gorilla. On the other hand, um, that's, we assume a less harmful human impact than labeling people as gorillas. Um, you know, someone is not getting their photographs tagged, um, but that's probably more okay. Um, so we can do things like make some choices for, you know, certain themes or words. Uh, how can we handle them in ways that can minimize harm? And that doesn't necessarily mean omit everything that we think could be offensive, but it means think about, anticipate alone, just anticipate that some stuff 
you know, will will end up being problematic. So let's envision some of the things that could be problematic and let's have some sort of policies in place for how to deal with that. Certainly with testing, you definitely want to have tests. You want to make sure that you're not going to have a regression somewhere down the line for something you consciously tried to deal with. Um, so there's, there are some things we can do. Um, and this is where algorithmic transparency also comes in, um, which is a principle of literally much the same way you have open source software making the algorithms public. Um, and the reason you do this is essentially like open source, it's, it's that, you know, ideal of lots of eyes surfaces, you know, more problems. So being able to have a much more diverse mm -hmm. populace looking at these and saying, I see something, <laughs> I see something that will, you know, that you might not have anticipated, um, that I know very well. Um, most black people are very, and for instance, Indian um, people from the Indian subcontinent are very aware that it's hard to get a good picture. Um, that's not a surprising problem for them. Um, so if you ask the right person, hey, what could go wrong here? They can immediately tell you, I know one. I feel like there's a there's another layer here. You talked about the importance of algorithmic transparency, and I agree that that's very, uh, very crucial. But uh, there's another category, I think, of of this kind of problem. And uh, I think a good example of this is the movement towards predictive policing, which is the idea that you can feed a bunch of crime statistics into a machine learning model and then have it tell you where crime is likely to occur. Um, and it may be that uh, the machine learning mm -hmm. algorithm there is just trying to pick up on the patterns that that uh, humans might not immediately spot, except the problem with that, of course, is that if you're feeding it data on arrest rates, um, that that data itself comes from decades and decades of police bias in who they choose to pursue and arrest mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, do broken windows policing against. And uh, so I feel like we also have to be able to have these conversations, not only about how our algorithms are biased, but we need to be able to talk about and recognize when our data itself that we're feeding in is bad. Yeah. Yeah. In the case of that one, you yeah. really have to reconsider even using, say, arrest and conviction records as a proxy for where crime happens or who perpetrates crime. Those are actually separate things. Yeah, right. Yeah. We have to be reminded yeah, say, that there's, that's there's not me that... data, that's a proxy for the data. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. part of me that wants to say, well, don't throw out predictive policing uh, based on you know this, but but do, and, and maybe we should until we, until we understand this, but... There's a part of me that wants to say, uh, what you feed in is what you're going to get out. So instead of saying we're going to predict where crime happens, no, we're going to predict where you're likely to make an arrest, right? Yeah. That's that's essentially that that's the corpus that you're working off. You're working off the enforcement data. So we're not predicting where you're you know where you're going to find crime. We're predicting what you are going to enforce. And I think there's some educational value in that. I th I oh, that's interesting. Just, yeah, find that interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel yeah. like to bring it back, though, to our responsibilities as uh, computer professionals of some sort or another, um, we need to recognize this tendency that, that we have to take biased data and throw it into an algorithm and somehow and assert that somehow magically it isn't biased anymore. I think we need to right. be able to recognize that that's a problem and figure out how we might deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Karina. So the, in the example you give, one of the problems is it's being used uh, 
for the purpose of, for for sentencing. You brought up that predictive policing is is being what's extracted by this particular algorithm. That is, can we anticipate where crime is going to happen and be there essentially on the spot to prevent rather than to catch after the fact? Uh, similar algorithms, similar you know data sets are being used also. Uh, for sentencing guidelines. So judges are looking at these and essentially saying, a person like you normally gets sentenced for this kind of crime X amount of time, so that's the sentence I'll give you. And like what you were raising, Sam, this is a data set full of bias to begin with, that African-American people are uh, essentially punished much more for similar crimes than white people in America. So if you're looking at that history and saying a person similar to you would historically get this kind of, of sentence, then you're also locking in a system of bias that's existed for a long time. You're not making a good prediction of what kind of sentence will, will be rehabilitative, for instance. You're imposing a racial legacy that we're trying to distance ourselves from. Yeah, yeah. Sometime back around in yeah. 2003, I spoke to a, a judge here in Multnomah County in Oregon. I think his name was Michael Marcus. I'll look that up later. Who was working on, um, had been working on a system that tried to do some correlations between uh, sentences that were given and later recidivism rates to see if there was uh, any data that he could get, he could get out of that uh, it was supposed to be as a used as a guide for judges to figure out how to sentence people um, which i thought that was really really interesting and it seemed like it had a lot of promise it was a fun thing to run across early in my career promise and yet very big flaws so david brought up the point earlier about dealing with biased information if you're feeding an algorithm all this biased information you're going to end up with results that are biased. So as a programmer today, if I have the opportunity, kind of appreciating the fact that a product has many, many different pieces and it's built on years and years of research and work and on the shoulders of past programmers, if I'm building something like a video app or a, a photo app and I have mountains of data on how to process fair skin, but I don't have data because of that historical bias on processing darker skin, what is my responsibility? Do I just kind of throw out that information because it's not fair in the end? Is it my job to somehow make up for that lack of info? Like, how, how do I make product decisions in that type of situation? Well, I think in part the word, how do I make product decisions or words, um, it answers itself. Uh, you're not the product manager, you're the programmer. And the product manager should be hearing this stuff and should be making the hard decisions about how to deal with it. Um, what we can do is say, here's a list of, of ways I know how to deal with it, and let's, as a team, discuss, you know, find even more. Um, one of the ways that we deal with these problems is by having diverse teams and by crowdsourcing to people outside of our team. Um, right now, Google is dealing with translation and accent recognition, both by crowdsourcing. So they're using... Um, mechanical Turk to crowdsource how to interpret Scottish accents. It turns out that that oh is my. where they 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 fall apart completely. In fact, if you look on YouTube, there's some hilarious videos. Um, Google also has an app whose name I believe is Crowdsource, um, 
which is giving people examples of written and verbal language to interpret for them, to essentially teach their algorithms how to be better at interpreting hard problems. So this is a great way to extend your knowledge beyond the team and let an entire world of people contribute their data, their knowledge, their perspective to these problems. We don't have to solve this all within our own team. In fact, we should assume that there's no way for our teams to be diverse enough to understand a world of perspectives. Mm -hmm. I just that wanna, is a good starting place. I want to reiterate a point here because I hear this fairly frequently, this question that's basically, um, I see these problems and I have a hard time finding enough diverse people or building a diverse enough team to solve these problems. And so I just want to reiterate that point. You don't have to have those people on your team. It's ideal if you have some of them, if you can find them and get them on your team. But crowdsourcing outside your team will help you co uh, compensate for the other biases that you can't account for by having people on your team. And wherever possible, pay for the time that you use. Yeah, uh, Mechanical Turk pays a, a little pittance. Uh, crowdsource doesn't. And if you look at the reviews for the app, uh, people do call that out. Um, fair. Um, I, I eagerly did a bunch last night, and there was a point at which I said, you know, I just spent an hour on this. I don't need a lot of money, but Google's getting a whole bunch of value out of what I and all these other people are doing, and they can afford a little pocket change. So going back to your point about diverse teams, I will say that I'm going to draw a hard line to sit here, and you do have to have a diverse team. It, it's not enough to sort of give up and say, this is really hard. I, I, you know, I don't seem to be able to have a diverse team. You have to start there. Um, crowdsourcing essentially is additive, not substitute. We have was, to be able to yeah, solve a lot of problems within the I was, room. I was, I was wondering if we were going to let Chuck get away with, with saying, you don't have to have those people on your team. He didn't say those people. but I was going to say, <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what essentially I was trying to say was that, that, you know, the ideal situation is you have the diverse people on your team, so go find yes. them. Yeah. But, you know, for the, the biases that you can't find people that will help you account for those, and as you said, there's no way to have a team that's going to be diverse enough to account for all of these situations. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure you're doing the crowdsourcing. Karina, did you see the article about Nextdoor that came out this week? Uh, yeah. Where they they reduced. So this is. I'll put this in the show notes. This is fascinating to me. Um, Nextdoor is a. I guess it's a neighborhood watch program where you can kind of. Uh, you know, just you can just. It's like Facebook, only you can basically say suspicious person breaking into car. Da 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 da. Yeah, we and, also sometimes use it for like here's some stuff for sale, but that seems oh, okay. to be the, the majority use case. Okay. Yeah, and the. I guess the problem with Nextdoor is that it's. It's used by people in geographical communities, which are already reinforced by the, you know, by the 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 big sort of of the the American population. So we tend to live by people that look like us and talk like us and think like us. So next doors very quickly became an in group out group kind of place. And it turns out that they became rampant with racism. I'm telling this story way too long. I'll try to sum up. They became rampant with racism. And uh, people would just write things of black person, you know, suspicious black person uh, entering car. That was the entire report for the neighborhood watcher for the for the group. And the the CEO of Nextdoor is uh, Indian. And um, 
took issue with his company being, uh, you know, a hotbed of racism. And they basically said, well, screw it. Let's A-B test this. I don't know how to fix this, but let's try something. Let's let's not do nothing. Let's actually say we're going to do this. And they A-B tested a whole bunch of stuff. They crowdsourced uh, their test results. So they had humans saying, is this racist? Is it not? And they used it against their existing data, and they used it against control group and their, their experimental group. But they ended up with just two things, um, one of them being a reminder about racial bias that, you know, hey, remember, race is a thing um, when you post. And then they also put in um, a – I don't know the word for it. Um, if it was – if it's a bad thing, it would be called control fraud. Um, but in this case, it's control fraud used for good. They, they made it harder – uh, control fraud is when you make it, make the process harder than it has to be arbitrarily. That's so. If you take, I'm screwing this up. This is great. You know what, editor? Just leave this as is. People need to understand how dumb I sound uh, without being edited. But uh, <laughs> the the point is that um, you you take the process and you make it harder for certain use cases, and that, that this is control manipulation by by manipulating the process. If they detect that you have reported something to do with ethnicity in your report, they immediately pop open a form that says, you have mentioned race in your post. You need to supply at least two other identifying uh, things. You can't just say, um, you know, a Mexican person getting into a car. You need to tell us um, what was, you know, what was he wearing? Uh, what was he doing? What was he, you know, how tall, what was the age? What was the, you know, what was the gender? If it was a male or female, uh, you need to supply more information about this person. If you are just saying dark skinned person getting into a car, no, we can't. And they, what they found was over 50% of uh, reports that involved the, the keyword race got abandoned. The, the person writing the report, well, dark-skinned person getting into a car, and then it said, boom, you need to give us two more details. And they said, uh, you know what, I'm just not going to post it. And Nextdoor's CEO said, awesome. We didn't want those posts anyway. And it's like, when are you going to find a content manager saying less content, less traffic is good? And in the case of Nextdoor, that's, that's what it was. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues podcast. We've talked a lot about how these algorithms sort of see or detect or, you know, create these social situations around how we see people. But it's it's interesting because sometimes these algorithms just bring something up that sets somebody, you know, that, that triggers somebody that makes them sad or, or, you know, reminds them of something horrible that happened. Um, I, I think on Facebook there were 
issues where it brought up like uh, in the past, you know, so many years ago or whatever, and it it showed like somebody's daughter that had passed away or somebody's dog that had passed away or something like that. And you know, it, it, as you can imagine, it'd be fairly traumatic. You know, you're you're skimming through there and you're seeing what your friends are doing, and then you you have this right in the middle of it that you know is emotionally jarring for you. Yes. So uh, Facebook has particularly had problems with this and had a lot of complaints from people due to the uh, year in review, which they do in December. And the service that they started, I think, within the last year um, called On This Day, where they harken back and find some sort of post previously and say things like, three years ago, you did this, or here's a picture of something you were excited about two years ago. Um, and many people report that what it it tells them to celebrate is, yay, three years ago, here's your dog. And they say that's the dog that died three years ago. That's why oh. we were discussing it so avidly. Um, yeah. uh, a year in review, the notorious example um, was Eric Meyer. Eric Meyer? Um, his six-year-old daughter had died, I believe, of cancer. And oh, wow. in year in review, because those posts, of course, were so heavily discussed um, by his Facebook friends, as one would expect, when the algorithm is looking for things that had a lot of activity, a lot of you know comments, a lot of shares, uh, unsurprisingly, you're going to find stuff that's not just happy, but is profoundly emotionally affecting in other ways. And in this case, it was not just very sad to remember, but it was something very unexpectedly being put right back in your face out of the blue. It's not making a choice to go, you know, as an individual, browse back through the year and, and sort of contemplate some of that stuff. It's someone getting up in the morning and being, hey, congratulations, your daughter died six months ago. Unintentional, devastating. Some other examples, um, that, that same Flickr example included one... Um, uh, trigger alert, content alert, uh, Holocaust. Um, it tagged a photo of DACA concentration camp as a jungle gym. Oh, so again, man. you can be innocently wow. surfing for, hey, show me some you know kids' playground equipment and suddenly get hit with a really unexpected, devastating image. Uh, interesting thing about this one, and here's another one of our little guidelines to look at, the photographer knew where they took the picture. The photographer had already tagged it as Dachau. This is a great example of make sure that we're not assuming that machines are smarter than humans. Mm -hmm. We have to look to the native human knowledge that's being provided and say, how can we add to that or what can we derive from that rather than what can we substitute for that? That's a that's a really good distinction. Thank you for 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 drawing on that. The we we talked early at the at the top of the show about um, image processing, identifying people as animals, and I was I was waiting for you to say it. I it took a picture of of a of a dark skinned person and then identified them with uh, not misidentified them by species. I mean, good heavens! But but. Uh, projected cultural bias onto them, like, like took a picture, you know, a beautiful picture of, you know, like a, like a beautiful black woman and then put, you know, suspicious or, uh, welfare, you know, something on it, you know, that, that, that projects, uh, you know, white privilege bias onto people. Um, and I was, 
I was thinking about the distinction between, you know, when your machine learning misses, just completely misses uh, the thing based on the fact that you're like, like Hewlett Packard only training against a certain subset, uh, a certain phenotype of, of human being. Um, but then there's also stuff that, that reveals our in-group, out-group biases. And I wanted to pick into that a little bit, but before we do that, this takes me forever to answer. ask a question. I'm sorry. My question is this, ignoring for a minute how we ended up with this data, ignoring for a minute how we ended up uh, labeling a concentration camp as a child's playground, um, what do we do? You, you you mentioned algorithmic transparency, and this is this is what I wanted to touch back on: is what do you do once you've put bad data out there? Like, how do you how do you know? Like, I, yes, I want to know how to keep the cows in the barn, but as a programmer, I've just I've declared bankruptcy on keeping cows in the barn ever, and so I always want to know how do we get the cows back in the barn, um, and how do we tell where the cows are? How do we tell if the cows are out of the barn? And so, um, how do we know when we've screwed up? And how do what do we do when we've screwed up? Both in terms of like, I actually no, I'm I'm less I'm less concerned about the incident management. You know, I, I don't want to you know get into like you know how do we fix this one post, but like, what do we do when we find out that we're labeling people um, as as animals? Yeah. So first, we have to be able to know that. You know, we need to have mm -hmm. the reporting before we can even address it. So one good thing to do is when you're making an app for whatever it is, regardless of whether it's photos, whatever, is make sure there's a really easy reporting feedback mechanism where users can say immediately, hey, there's a problem here, just want to alert mm -hmm. you. And make sure that you already have in place policies for dealing with common cases. For instance, mm -hmm. you know, if there's an offensive image, uh, Facebook has uh, long written guidelines on what is an unacceptable image, how do you handle that. They have systems in place so that they're not having to be reactive of, oh my gosh, what do we do here? Similarly, as part of the process of deployment, make sure that deployment includes we already have in place policies for dealing with feedback and we know what kind of feedback we've gotten because we've done data beta testing that asks those questions. And so we found what kind of common cases occur. And we've made sure that, that form has some sort of open text field to report cases that are not common that we may not have anticipated, including things like, you know, Flickr probably didn't anticipate that there were ways for the tagging to be incredibly off base and offensive. It's mm -hmm. It is in some ways reasonable they didn't anticipate that, but isn't it so much better to get that feedback immediately on scale privately and be able to deal with it swiftly rather than wait until there's a big public blow up over it? Right. So having that immediate feedback loop is so valuable. And actually listening mm -hmm. and taking it seriously, right? Like it's one thing to have the procedures and the processes yeah. in place to receive it, but once you get it, do you listen? Do you get really defensive? You know, do you actually incorporate that into your future decisions? Great point. I wanted to, I wanted to go back to this idea of machines versus humans, and I think a really good example of that was recently with Facebook's newsfeed. 
And for a while, they had an editorial team which curated that. And there was a lot of discussion about, oh, well, it's a human team, therefore it must be biased and there have to be issues around it. And they recently replaced it with just machines. They got rid of their team and it's, it's all just um, automated at this point. And I think it was all this week, right? They had, was it three news stories that were fake and also uh, not family friendly? I guess it'd be a good way to put it in in different ways. (laughs) As we're recording this on Tuesday, I I believe they fired their team on Friday or they announced that they did. And then like Saturday, Sunday, Monday. (laughs) There were epic fails. Just one every day, right? Three epic fails. Which I think is actually. Go ahead. Which I think is such an interesting example of trust the humans versus trust the machines. So I'd love to just hear your your thoughts and your reaction to that. Yeah. Um, So you're you're correct. Friday, 4 p.m., they abruptly fired the entire team and gave them an hour to get out of the building. Uh, By Saturday, there were already notorious examples of major fail, Sunday, Monday. There actually were more than three. There were just three that were particularly... Um, well reported upon in the news, but it was it was kind of a broader problem than that. So essentially, circling back to what was going on, previously they had algorithms to surface potentially good stories for Facebook's trending today sidebar, right? Um, and then human editors would look among those and pick some things based on again, Facebook had long written policies on exactly how to go about selecting and then how to surface those. But there was editorial control in the sense that having had you know, the scaling problem dealt with, how do we take all these zillions of articles and filter it down to a reasonable number that appear to be trending? How do we then select something of particular quality, reliability, interest factor, and make that the choice? So uh, in May, there was an article criticizing that saying that the humans actually were biased in their selections, that they were biased against conservative stories in particular. Facebook did an internal investigation. They said, we don't see any evidence of that. However, we're going to move to completely algorithmic soon anyway, rather than having any dependence on humans. That was the decision that they carried out on Friday. And we saw the disastrous fallout from that decision. And I think, Saran, you couldn't have picked a better example of how that kind of arrogance, and I think part of it is our programmer culture within tech of devaluing anyone who isn't a programmer. They didn't value the knowledge, experience, and human filtering of journalists Mm -hmm. they had in their employ. So What I love is the the hubris, though, of... We're going to replace you with an algorithm we haven't even tested, but we've thought about it and we're sure it's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a that major decision because they're not you know, just some small startup where no one will notice if things are wrong. I mean, they're freaking Facebook. That's a really big decision. There was um, an article by someone who'd been on the team, and she said that it was habitual. One of the problems that they had as a team is that the engineers were routinely changing the algorithm without telling them. So this was actually an historical trend for them, is they were used to having no communication with the engineers. They actually had policies imposed upon them of you don't meet with engineers, you don't discuss with engineers, you do not have conversations with people outside your team, you're just contractors. So that isolation meant the engineers didn't have that feedback and 
the the human editors didn't have that warning. It's really easy to have a fail when there's that kind of gap. And of course, the history of, of arrogance of like, hey, we can change this anytime, no big deal. It may be that the no big deal was that the humans were compensating for problems in those changes. They don't know. We don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting. I, I kind of want to get to this toward the end is that um, we've given all these examples, but I don't think we've explicitly called out that um, I think let me back up. I think a lot of I think a lot of the time we think about our coding as just the vacuum that we work in, right? So we're sitting mm-hmm. at our computer by ourselves, or even if we have a uh, you know a pair, we're pair programming, but we're sitting there and we're just thinking about the code. We're thinking about implementing the algorithm. We're thinking about uh, building this technology that does a thing, and we don't think about the the wider social consequences of what we're doing. And you know, it, it's. It's something that's come up over and over again in the episode, but at the same time, it's something that's easy to lose sight of because ultimately we have a story card on our Agile board that we're just trying to get done. Um, yeah. And so, you know, some of these things are, you know, pretty serious things and they're widely publicized because they're large companies doing it. Um, you know, how, how do we become more aware of this? I mean, we've talked about diverse teams, but, you know, if I'm just working by myself on a project, how do I personally uh, try and be a little bit more mindful of the social consequences of what I'm doing, even if it's something relatively simple or relatively small where I don't have or involve a team? I think what I've discovered is there's no such thing as something that's relatively simple. As soon as you're dealing with humans, it's always going to be more complex than we think it is immediately. Um, so some of the things I brought up, I think, are applicable to that, even as a one-person shop or particularly as a one-person shop. Ask more people than are in your circle. Ask a lot more people. Do beta testing that is as diverse as possible geographically, racially, gender, religions. I mean, find as many possible axes of human diversity and make sure you're hitting them all in some way. Even if that's just a sample of a couple of people per, make sure you've got a really broad representation of possible users. And if you don't, then make sure the release is only to people who fit the group you've tested with. Maybe you can't do a global rollout right away because you just don't have the feedback yet to serve a global audience well, and you don't want to have pie on your face later. Um, or certainly to alienate an entire group of potential users because they see this as something that is inherently offensive or doesn't care. Um, so that's one issue. I think the crowdsourcing as well is potentially a way. As a one-person shop, it may be really hard to do something like Mechanical Turk. Expense of that can quickly you know, blow up. But we have, we have avenues to reach out for knowledge beyond our own, and it's incumbent on us to try so my, I have a follow-up question to this, just because I know several people that, wh- I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but for them, because they don't completely understand all of the issues involved with different groups of people or with diversity or inclusion, they, they just, they feel like they don't know or they don't understand, and they're not quite sure how to approach other people about some of these things. So... I mean, it feels like a lot of times people just hear, well, just get over it because it's the right thing to do. But are there ways to break down those walls for yourself without, um, 
without it being overly, you know, uncomfortable or, you know, trying to break down a wall that you're just going to throw yourself against over and over again. I don't know if I'm asking this well, but I, I know people that, that have these barriers that they put up for themselves that they, you know, and then they just kind of throw up their hands like, I don't get it and I'm not going to. Can, sorry, can you rephrase that? Because I don't think I understand. So a lot of people will just chalk this up to diversity or inclusion is hard. And so then they just kind of throw up their hands and it's like, well, I'm never going to understand it. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to try, you know, even uh. though I feel like it's the right thing to do. So how do you get people past that? May I? Go ahead. I feel like the answer to that is kind of the same as the answer to some of the algorithmic uh, fails that we've been discussing. And, and the answer to both is really you as a human being uh, and you as a uh, software professional, you have certain uh, responsibilities and obligations and uh, uh, you should have a certain set of ethics that uh, require you to confront things even when they are uncomfortable. I agree. I also just want to uh, push a little bit on the it's OK to be wrong. Um, yeah. You know, you're going to figure it out. But it's, you know, as you're picking this stuff up. Um, I mean, I think we've all made mistakes along this road and, you know, just keep getting better. Yeah. Diversity is hard, but it's also important. Yes. So never give up. It's never going it's, it's going to stay hard. It's never going to get easy. It might get easier, but it won't ever get easy. But it's always going to be important. I also, I, I just want to push back. This isn't a diversity conversation. No, it's not. Right. Right. Like it, yes, it's not. You. This is this is about algorithms, and we are all affected by algorithms. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's yeah. not an issue of oh, let's protect the black people or let's protect the women. Like it, it's not that, right? And I just, I just want to be very clear that. There are plenty of examples that we haven't talked about. Sam, you were talking or you mentioned in the messages about the Fitbit example. I don't know if you want to bring that up. But there are plenty of different yeah. examples that show that this is about all of us and we are all affected by it in small ways and in very big ways. So let's just let's just not forget that we're in this together in many different ways. Yes, and, and thank you. The uh, I was thinking that the Fitbit example would be uh, a much clearer example of where our professional ethics come in. And uh, Karina, do you want to summarize that one since it was in your talk? Fitbit is uh, another one of these uh, activity trackers. In its early days, it was it's a social activity tracker. So the idea is share, you know, how many steps you've taken, what your current weight is what kind of activities do you engage in with the idea of sort of gamifying that socially. My friends, you know, did a little bit more than me. I'm going to try harder, et cetera, um, some sort of motivator stuff. So in its early days, Fitbit had a feature that included tracking your sexual activity, which is, again, as a sex educator, I'm kind of delighted. That is a legitimate physical activity that burns some calories. Um, the question is, did everybody intend to be that social gamification of it. Fitbit treated all data as equal. And so by default, they shared all data, including the sexual activity information. Not everyone was aware of that. Search engines started turning up people's profile full of this wow. uh, information, I think, that most people would consider private. Um, for some people, you know, they're fine with that. But I think it's an unreasonable default to look at all data as equal and say we can, you know, opt out if you don't want to share your sexual mm -hmm. activity with the world. 
No, you need to look at each data point and say, what is a reasonable default for sharing this one, one by one? I'd be really careful. Right, and that's one where uh, I think the ethical obligation is pretty clear, especially like in a culture where we have a, at least the default expectation of monogamy. If somebody is um, outed by their data tracker as having had sexual activity when their primary partner was perhaps not involved, uh, that's going to have some interesting uh, implications for your users' lives. You know, whether or not we want to be enabling people to hide their affairs, that's another question. Um, but as people with access to that data and uh, um, deciding what to do with it, we have a responsibility to at least treat it carefully. So to our listeners, uh, we just want to give you a quick content warning that we're about to uh, discuss uh, issues of rape. So tying in the Fitbit example with earlier examples we discussed about policing, they actually have uh, bearing on each other. There was recently a case in which a woman had um, claimed that she was raped and prosecutors ended up accusing her of falsifying that claim. And they based that assumption on her Fitbit data that they didn't believe she was raped because of certain data on the Fitbit saying that her activity did not seem consistent uh, with, with the accusation. Oh. There's a big problem with this in that Fitbit, first of all, anyone who's used Fitbit can already tell you, or any of these activity trackers is, they're not totally accurate. Um, this was so extraordinarily proved in that earlier in the year, uh, there was an example of actually being able to use a Microsoft Band, which is very similar to Fitbit, to get a heart rate of 120 beats per minute from a dead chicken. So saying this is so reliable, we can use this to prosecute someone, and she ended up getting sentenced to, I think, like two years in jail? Oh, two wow. years. Um, it, she actually was uh, ordered to serve two years of probation based on that Fitbit data, which we know to be very imprecise, not entirely reliable. It's used more for entertainment purposes than it is for precise data. And to have that extrapolated, knowing that that data can be that level of unreliable, where it's getting any heartbeat off of a dead chicken, let alone something that seems that stable, you've got a problem. We can't start tying sets of unreliable data, despite the fact that they're drawn on, hey, lots of big data, and say that technology can know better than, than the real world. we got to be really, really careful about allowing these things to be pulled together. Big doesn't mean accurate. Oh, there's the pull quote. There you go. All right. Well, um, I hate to wrap this up, but I'm kind of under a time constraint, so... Um, is there any kind of parting thought that we want to wrap this up with before we go to picks other than just what we do has impact and, you know, beyond just what the software does. It, it all, it all interacts with the world and it can affect people in real ways. I think you can count on it to affect people in real ways every single time. Everything that we do counts. Yep. It's personal. If we're going for pithy quotes, how about making the world a better place doesn't necessarily mean finding more efficient ways to pick up your dry cleaning. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, David, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, and I'm just going to be really quick. Um, I'm reading 99 Bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen, and 
I, I can't pick this book hard enough. It is absolutely knocking my head right off my shoulders. It's freaking amazing. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about it. Um, no, I will say one other thing. I can't give a short pick. Yeah, I, I will give a short pick. Here's my pick. Um, get the book, do the exercise, actually put the book down and go do the coding exercise. And, uh, you will, you will be betrayed by your own biases and you, <laughs> you will, if you just skim over the exercise and get to the end of the chapter, you will go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a thing. And you will completely retcon your own behavior, uh, to not be biased and, uh, no, do the exercises. Yeah. They nailed me to the wall. 99 bottles by, Citrine, by uh, Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. It's awesome. It's we, so good we need to have them on the show. In fact, we should, uh, we should actually call that out. We are doing a book club on 99 bottles. We're going to be recording it at the end of October, which means it'll come out sometime in November. Yeah. Nice. Saran, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I have a couple. Um, the first is actually just piggybacking off of what David said because we're reading Nine Nine Bottles for Wee Book Club. So if you're interested in reading along, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, for my own two picks, one is the browser Vivaldi, which I don't know if you all have heard of, but it is awesome. I installed it yesterday and started using it, and it's really, really good. I believe it's by the makers of the Opera browser, and it's based um, it's based on Chromium, and basically it's. I think their tagline is the browser we made for our friends or something like that. And the idea is taking a bunch of Google Chrome extensions that they really liked and just things they wish a browser could do and just building it right into it. So one of the things that I love about it is the note-taking feature. So you get this nice little notepad on the left of the browser. And as you're going through different websites, you can pull out quotes and links and just kind of have your own organized notepad. And it makes it super, super easy to do any research that you're doing. So highly, highly recommend Vivaldi. And my last shout out is Magnetic Sticky Notes. I think they're created by a company called Turing Amazing. And I saw the demo for it. I still don't believe it works this well, but I'm going to buy it and try it out. But basically, it's sticky <laughs> notes that stick to anything. So you can use a marker, a pen, pencil, whatever it is you want, but you can stick it on any surface, on stone, on wood, on plastic, whatever it is. And it comes in little sticky note sizes, and then it comes in big paper sizes. You can put it on your wall. The back of it is made of whiteboard material. I mean, the whole thing is just magical. So if you're interested in that, check out Magnetic Sticky Notes. Uh, and those are my picks. Very cool. Sam, what are your picks? Um, I'm just going to pick one thing today, and that is the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh, this is a uh, uh, place in uh, Ashland, Oregon, so southwest Oregon, almost all the way down to California. Uh, it's a little hard to get to from other parts of the country, but it's well, well worth the trip. Uh, they have a season that's, I don't know, something like eight or nine months long, I think. Um, and basically every time I've gone to see uh, a play there, it's always been the best production of that play that I have ever seen. Uh, we went this year and we saw Twelfth Night uh, and The Wiz, and both were amazing. It's uh, If you can uh, manage to get the time and travel out there uh, and you like Shakespeare and uh of course, theater in general, they, they do probably about half Shakespeare and half other stuff. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's great. Uh, can I make a quick correction on my uh, one of my picks? Yeah, go ahead. So correction, it's not Turing Amazing. It's Tesla Amazing. But I was pretty close. I knew it started with a T. So there you go. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw a couple things out there that I've been working on. Uh, one is, is if you want the recordings for Ruby Remote Comp, those are now available. If you go to... Uh, devchat.tv click on conferences you can get 
the recordings for that. Uh, Rails Remote Conf is coming up, so if you want tickets to that, you can also buy those. Um, I'm doing some uh, webinars for the Get a Coder Job book. So if you're trying to find a programming job, especially if you're a new programmer, that's the focus of these, um, then we're pulling those together. Um, I'm doing a bunch with, you know, just the material from the book, and then I'm doing one with Joe Masty, and he's going to be talking to us about apprenticeship programs. And then I'm also doing another one with Josh Duty, who we had on a few weeks ago, and he's going to be talking to us about salary negotiation. So if you want a live discussion um, presentation with Q&A and all of that good stuff, then go check it out. Uh, you can get all that information at devchat.tv slash webinars. Uh, Karina, what are your picks? Okay, so mine are two books. One is Howard Zinn. He actually, a whole series of his books, uh, principally People's History of the United States, but he's got a whole series around that. If you're interested in getting a much broader perspective on people in the U.S., on history, on just generally diversifying your perspective, fantastic books, really detailed history. There's that maxim, history is written by the victors. These are the stories of people who weren't the victors, telling history from, from their perspective. So I think that's fascinating. And then I am an avid cook and baker, and so I love Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, which is essentially an encyclopedia of food science. It's not recipes. It's everything you'd ever want to know about food science so you can make your own recipes amazing. I love it. Super thick. It's a reference forever. Very cool. If people want to find out what you're up to these days, uh, go follow you around to conferences or things like that. What do they do? Um, Twitter is where I'm most active. I, I kind of use Twitter to blog. Um, uh, you can find my latest conference um, schedule on my website at cczona.com. Uh, my next couple of conferences are... Yuruko um, in September, uh, Lean Agile Scotland in October, SCNA also in October and November, uh, go to Berlin. So I'm pretty excited about all of those. Very cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this show up. Thank you for coming. It was really interesting just to think about the impact that our code has outside yes. of our teams and our companies. So thank you for making us think about this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you also brought up so many examples I didn't know about, so I'm loving this. All right, we'll Good. wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week.